Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. It was a hot week in fintech, and actually a scorcher across most of the country. And speaking of things that are hot, Will Ferrell on First We Feast, eating spicy wings is one of the hottest things I've seen. So I thought, hey, let's recreate this with two of my favorite commentators, Alex Johnson and Amy Radden. They joined me for some hot wings and some hot takes on everything from the crypto meltdown, fears of inflation, down rounds among the neobanks, and everything next in fintech, all with some spicy wings. All right, Amy, I'm going to be perfectly honest. When you and I talked about this, the idea of, you know, we need spicier content in the banking world. And I was bringing up the story of, you know, the comedians, like the heat is on, you know, piece of comedians, hot wings. And I'm like, wouldn't it be hilarious if we recorded it and we like talked about really spicy topics and I had really spicy wings? Just sitting here, the two orders of hot wings that I have not even opened, right? Like I'm currently thinking the fact that the blazing and the jam and jalapeno were a bad choice. My eyes are watering and we haven't even like got into the spicy topics that I'm not sure where this ends. Yeah. Sorry, sorry that I didn't get my box of wings delivered, but um, but I'll, I'll, I'll cry later. I, well, I'll suffer for you. First topic. Like, so the markets have been talking about this. They've been crushed by it. The, uh, the Fed talks about raising rates and not raising rates. Doesn't matter what they do. Markets go down. Crypto is supposed to be a hedge against the markets and inflation. It's also go. everything is going down right now. Right. Let's play this out. Inflation. Where's it going to go? And what are the implications for banks? I mean, inflation, what do they say? It's up over 8% last month. So inflation, you know, appears to be rising. And it doesn't look like there are more than feeble attempts to control it. Consumers' perceptions of inflation are going to be potentially even worse than the reality of overall inflation. And so much of this is perception. One of the perceptions that I don't know that I, I at least hear enough financial institutions talking about is... We've gotten relatively comfortable with this idea that money is free, right? First, we have you know a Fed rate near zero and banks' ability to borrow, right, it has been so low. And then because of stimulus and people weren't spending on other things, we're flush with deposits for so long that I think it's really like there's going to be a bunch of banks in for a shock. And I think that shockwave then extends out to fintechs that think, oh, I'm going to get paid for these core deposits, right? Like there's going to be a reimagination of how the, the financial system kind of fits together around that flow of funds. Yeah. And I think the other thing that is going to affect how people are looking at their at their cash flow and what they do with their cash with their cash deposits is the decline in the value of retirement accounts. And look, I would say most people don't clue into the fact that there's a correlation between low rates and higher equity values. And now we're going to go in the other direction. And that's going to cause consumers to rethink what they're doing with their money. 
and it's going to definitely affect how they engage with their with their banks, with their credit card companies, and their other financial providers. Yeah, I mean, talk about while everything else is going down, what's going up right now is credit utilization also skyrocketing at the moment, and you know that has actually been a reversal of a trend when people. Previously, we're actually using you know the work from home reduction expenses stimulus checks to pay that down. That I think that brings us into you know what's your take? Are we coming into a recession? Or are we already in a recession? You, you and I have been through these cycles before. Not a lot of fintechs and younger bankers necessarily have. What are the implications for banks when we hit this recession? I mean, look, technically, you know, two consecutive quarters of of GDP decline means a recession. So we just had, you know, the reports of a much higher than expected decline in GDP first quarter uh, with a lot of concern around, wow, what's coming next? So certainly we seem to be heading in that direction. We're in a bear market based on stock market declines, right? And so, so whether we're in a recession or not, the bear market is, is very worrisome. Um, my having having spent many years inside, you know, big financial enterprises, uh, my fear is what's happening around the table now in executive conference rooms is um, pullbacks. Mm. You know, let's pause hiring. Let's you know, let's cut non-essential spend. Let's re-forecast. Let's tighten up credit criteria. So the reaction tends to be. Let's take short term, let's do short term things to mitigate risk versus the other piece of the equation that that they should be looking at. And maybe some of them are is, wow, this is a time when I should be selectively investing and experimenting and really homing in on what's happening with my customers. How are their needs and attitudes changing? And is this a time for innovation? Is this a time for partnering with fintechs? I want to circle back to that. I, I want to make sure we pull out. I'm going to say the first spicy thing that I think leads to e- eating a spicy wing, which is we've had, you know, close to a decade of kind of a bull run and kind of up markets. When we've seen massive expansion in both fintechs and fintech partnerships, a ton of them focused on the lending space, right? Like the this, you know, starting with peer lending, which became marketplace lending to these automated underwriting. We've seen a whole lot of credit put out that has not gone through up and down cycles before. Absolutely. And I I think we're going to see, you know, a whole lot of oops, didn't expect that to play out. And so in general, while a fan of bank and fintech partnerships, which we can come to, I think we're going to see a lot of finger pointing coming up right now about what happens to some of this credit that we called it innovation, but what we were really doing was going deeper into the credit stack, uh, you know, based on how we we're both e- either underwriting or originating some of these loans. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. A lot of the fintechs that are out there came about and grew up in, you know, the post-2009 uh, recovery environment where things were only going up. So they, their business models, their automated underwriting, their tools have their talent have not been tested in a downturn. And I think they, you know, unfortunately are going to feel they're going to be live stress tested in a down market where they not only may face the risk of, um, 
not robust enough underwriting, but also won't have appropriate collections and recovery practices in place. Well, that is also a hot take, and I'm not going to lie. These wings are hot. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm beginning to sweat already and going to need to find the remote control of my air conditioning. I'm crying for the fintechs that are going to be struggling. But I think it's an important point, right, which is now is not the time to be figuring out you did not have a robust enough strategy and what happens in that down market when you overlay that with, hey, if now's the time you're also cutting costs and you're trying to get ahead of your own cash flow projections, that could be brutal. Um, and I think I think it is going to be brutal. I really, you know, the time to be getting ahead of those strategies is before you get into trouble. Uh, you know, I worked for, I remember uh, in one of my first uh, financial services jobs years ago, I was back at American Express. I was in a lending business, you know, because of course, American Express, you know, in the old days, was a pay in full product. When they first entered the lending business, I remember one of the top executives talking to the team and saying, you know, it's really easy to give people your money. It's another matter to get them to pay you back. Yes, exactly. And, you know, You've heard that adage. Yeah. And um so, you know, the message to the fintechs, those who can get ahead of the curve, is really look hard, not just at your at your underwriting, but are you do you have collections practices in place? You know, and are you being customer focused about those practices? You know, are you being smart about how you're going to negotiate uh repayments? You know, are you going to give people the flexibility to be able to recover? And, you know, empathy is not always um, uh, a characteristic that's in strong presence in the banking system. But when people get into repayment problems, um, empathy is an important part of the solution. That is an important point. So let's talk about, um, you know, getting ahead. I want to circle back to this point about now is not necessarily the time to be cutting. It really could be about investing. I remember when I first got into investing in the early 2000s, um, a pretty famous trader who was one of our LPs in our venture fund had made the comment, you know, this is you know, 2000, 2001, the world was blowing up. But he said, you know, down markets favor the bold who have a checkbook. And if you look at, you know, for what banks and other financial institutions should be doing, what do you think the bold moves are in a world that's being turned upside down? Yeah. So the bold move, my answer on bold moves is, is going to sound pretty boring because it's so practical and obvious, but so often missed by, by financial institutions, which there has never been a more critical time to really hone in on where are your customers' heads? What are they worried about? How are their spending and payment and savings habits changing and how well mapped is what you're doing and the experience you're creating to really delivering on their needs? And are you are you fast, right? Are you are you quick enough to move and adapt to their needs? So I would be investing in customer listening and the transition. But how should they listen? When you ask banks, they say they're listening. Oh, we've got a focus group. My personal favorite is like we have a millennial focus group because millennials understand technology. 
OMG is my answer to that. Listen, I saw, I read an article that was published in uh, in HPR a couple of years ago, and not that that means it's the best article on earth, but but some researchers did a study where they they tracked how about 400 CEOs in this country spent their time, and the shocking thing about that study was they found that that CEOs in that spent only three percent of their time with customers, right? And so, and I think you've got to get out from behind the focus group mirror and actually spend time with your customers as human beings, not, not in a context of trying to sell them something, convince them to love your product, solve their service problem, or implement the solution, but to really authentically listen, not to the answer that you want to hear, right? But to yep. really understand their context. And I would venture uh, to bet that most bankers do not do that. I do know of one startup in, in the fintech world where, for example, the executive in the executive meeting every week, uh, the team uh, reads a stack of customer service letters. Mm. And there, even that is listening. There's something about that qualitative very tangible, get close to the customer experience that um, you will never get in a focus group and you will never detect in an NPS trend. Yep. I mean, one of my theories- You've got to get real with your customers. Yeah. And, you know, because if you ask your customers, what do you want? They can only respond with what they've experienced. One of my favorite stories of this, David Ryling, host of the Next Gen Banker, you know, tells the story of- following customers, like leaving the bank and following them and watching what they do and why they do it. Cause he couldn't understand that they had, you know, customers who use some services, but still use check cashers. Right. And he's like, it made no sense until he looked at the population, you know, of who their customers had become, which were largely immigrant that grew up in a bodega style check cashing, you know, approach to cash run financial system. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm beginning to not be able to feel my lips. So, and, uh, that's, <laughs> I am so glad that box of wings was not delivered to my house. Thank oh, you, Jason. God. So the thing is, so that example that you're giving is a great example that in my mind, it's not just what they're used to, but there could be an underlying need where the person feels more secure doing it that way. And I think that, you know, what what bankers may forget, even though they're probably no different in their in their own lives, is that money is a means to an end. And if you don't understand that full context of why people have the relationship with the bank, I mean, let's face it, you know, not to hurt any bankers' feelings, but I don't think most people get up in the morning saying, I'm really dying to go to my bank. Right. I'm like really My dog is because she likes dog treats, but like she just knows Chase branches have dog treats. But I'm really looking forward to opening up that new account. I I mean like money for most people is a stressor. It's a it's a means to an end. So so you've gotta understand that full context and also really acknowledge that yeah, most people are irrational about their money. You know, if you know anything about behavioral finance, which I'm sure you do, you get into the, you know, how people really make decisions. You know, I remember at, during the financial crisis, 
doing in-home interviews, we went into home to talk to people to really get more of a feel for what was going on. And we mm. wanted to talk to people about you know, how are they handling their money during the recession and how could we move money off the sidelines? Because at that mm. time, people were just stashing money in CDs, right? Yep. Um, and there are always people talking about um, home ownership and how important it was for them to buy a home. And here at that point, home prices were plunging. So it's comp- but, you know, in this country, the home ownership is a value. And there's something about the tangibility of being able to go and touch the bricks. That even though what they were saying flew in the face of what was happening, they didn't care. Yep. Well, something else that kind of flies in the face that I think a lot of banks often you know, would say you know, is a long-held belief that isn't going to change, like the importance of home ownership, is the importance of M&A in the banking market. Now, 2021, massive year. 2022 had seen a cooling. I'm curious what you think when we talk about bank M&A. Give me, you know, a spicy hot take. What do you think the bank M&A market looks like going forward? Oh, I think banks that have a strong enough balance sheet are going to see this as an opportunity to continue to consolidate. Um, I really do. And I think there may be people who, but they will expect to do it at, um, you know, better price. And I think now there's, you know, people are expecting and you're seeing, you know, I'm an angel investor. So I'm seeing, you know, definitely in the group that I'm a member of, there's a real, ex- oh, that valuation is too high and a real expectation that valuation is going to come down. So I think there will be there will be banks out there who will want to get a deal. And I think on the other side, there will be people who may have thought of selling last year who are now going to want to cool it. But if they don't, but if their balance sheets fall under stress because their underwriting practices haven't been good, um, they may be they may be forced to sell. I think some people will will have their backs up against the wall, not to the point of triggering failures, but to the point of you know stockholders will get will get irritated, and um, they may be forced to make some moves. Um, you know, I'm going to build on that last one and maybe be a little extra spicy with it. That I think there have been some tectonic shifts in the marketplace that have masked a lot of the fundamentals on what made banks look, bank stocks look a lot more attractive than they were and that growth through acquisition looked a lot more attractive. I'd say first on that cheap money, right? Fed rated zero plus, you know, lots of deposits, got the tax windfall under Trump, PPP generated huge loan volume, customer activation, NPS. We saw low default rates because of stimulus, right? So these look like attractive propositions, but I want to you know, pull out something that Jim Maroos said at FinTech Fight Club, the first FinTech Fight Club that we did with MX is, you know, putting together two bad strategies in a broken business model doesn't suddenly fix it, actually. Now you're doubly broken. And I would build on top of it. I think there's two other poison pills. One's not new. Um, but the other, you know, it was accelerated by COVID is I don't want someone else's branch footprint, most likely. And the, my ability to, you know, show I was a consultant, capture the synergies, e.g. shut down a bunch of branches, um, you know, and reconcile Salesforce. I think that doesn't work as well as you, you used to think it was, right? Because it's not like you can just unload these things. Yeah. 
I think that will only work if a bank has already been on top of the game in terms of implementing um, digital channels, implementing having a great mobile infrastructure, having a really strong call center. So I think in the old world, you could close down branches and say, oh, you can go to this other branch, you know, two miles away. That's fine. I think in today's world, the banks who are flat-footed on the virtual channel support are not going to be in a good position to close branches and present an alternative. And so, you know, that's the argument for you can't wake up one day and say, okay, now I'm going to accelerate digital. Now I'm going to be innovative. You have to always be in the game because if you're out of the game, it's almost impossible to catch up, especially now because of the pace of change and because you probably don't have a culture that's oriented towards change. You probably don't have processes that are fast enough. You probably don't have governance in place to facilitate quick decision-making. So technology is almost the least part of it. You're going to be stuck on all this other stuff. Well, in, when we look at these bank fintech partnerships, you know, the, the, the savior of the banking industry is going to be these bank fintech partnerships. If it isn't the technology that's the most imp- important part of it, is, are those partnerships really that important? I think they're a starting point. Look, I work with startups now that um, not just fintech, but a range of companies who are B2B. So they sell, license their technology to big enterprises. The sticking point is not the technology. It's the to take advantage of the capabilities that the technology brings still requires rethinking processes, cultural impact, senior executive sponsorship to embrace it. Um, you know, I, I worked with, I'll take an example. I worked with a video tech company that has remarkable technology and they would like go in and pitch the tech to the head of the internal production team who would, and this happened multiple times. People like love what the technology does. And then all of a sudden they say, "Uh oh, they're coming for our jobs. Oh, we don't have time for this right now. You know, because, you know, as opposed to saying, wow, this could really enhance the quality of work that we provide to the organization and bring all kinds of new capability to help the business succeed. There's fear of the technology. So that's just one small example. But you need the tech by itself without the operations process, talent, and everything else may not get very far. Well, I, I want to pull out on this process, the importance of fixing process. was having a conversation this morning with the head of product at Mantle Disclosure. You know, Alloy Labs is an investor there. We do a lot of partnering with them. And part of uh, what Colleen pulled out, and I think she said this on the show before, is banks just want to digitize what they already do, which is just now you've automated something that's already broken. She said it's one of the things that she sees that is really holding a number of them back because she's like, they should actually just be taking a bunch of our off the shelf stuff because it's better than their broken process and it would be a heck of a lot cheaper than you know, trying to build you know something custom that isn't any better. And in fact, might be worse. Yeah. I mean, digitizing what they have is what I call the cut and paste job, right? And um, when I, when we were first implementing, you know, building the online acquisition engines at, at City years ago, yeah, not only did people around the, the business 
want to cut and paste the paper application online, but they wanted to add lots of additional fields because it was perceived as free. You know, we can capture all this other information. And of course, the more complex and irritating your online application is, the worse your credit quality, the through the door yeah. population is because good people aren't going to fill out that kind of application. And so then the conclusion was that it was that the internet was a bad channel, right? <laughs> and it took a while to get people to look into the mirror and realize, yeah, if you're going to acquire high quality customers at the right volume online, you need to completely rethink the customer experience of what that means. And so then you've got to redesign the process. And then that, not just, not just the user interface, yep. but that affects your back end. That requires you to, to automate. That requires you to rebuild your scoring models. That, I mean, and, and so it triggers a whole lot of change around the organization. And that's the hard part. You know, the, the, the technology by itself, people perceive, oh, we'll build a partnership and that'll change things. Mm. And it's perceived as, you know, a silver bullet, but it's just the thin edge of the wedge to what really has to happen. Yeah. Well, in, I think we all want the silver bullet, but it's not you know, something that exists. Change is hard work and it doesn't end. And I think that's what we're beginning, you know, to see the edge of, you know, and we can look to, you know, the folks like, you know, JP Morgan and City, I think have both put big stakes in the ground of how hard that work is. You know, JP Morgan put a dollar value to it at eight billion and City put a number of tech employees to it in the order of four thousand in terms of what it's gonna take to go rebuild what the bank needs to be. Yeah, it's hard. It's the hard and the harder as one of my friends say, and it's, it's a long road to get there. And it also um, requires that you accept that you're going to have failed experiments along the way. And I think that is a very hard thing culturally, not just for banks, but for any established enterprise to swallow. You know, um, and I like to tell people like, hey, it took, took Steve Jobs nine years to perfect the iPad. Yeah. You know, plenty of failures. So, you know, when stuff comes out of the chute and it's magical and glorious and wonderful, you know, everybody, you know, applauds and, and but but people don't realize, don't want to think about or don't want to have in their own career or life experience the the challenges, the difficulties, the failures that happen along the way. And so You've got to, you've got that is part and parcel of the territory of the kinds of transformations that banks need to undergo. Yeah. And I would expand that and say it's not just the banks need to undergo. There's a whole bunch of startups when venture capital money was free and everyone could get lots of funding to go chase a lot of ideas that replicate, you know, very closely other ideas that you know they have to also go do the hard work to figure out real insights and real ways to add value that, you know, when you're just focused on scale and money is free, you don't really have to go do that. Uh, yeah. And I think that, I think, you know, the fintechs who are arrogant enough to think that they can just eat the bank's lunch are being naive about what it really takes to run a financial institution. 
you know, because also early days, yeah, they're accountable to investors who can be, you know, pretty ordinary, but they're also, they're not on the radar of the regulators. So scaling doesn't just mean getting more customers, right? It means whether you're public or private, you've got to build up that infrastructure to be compliant. To be compliant and to add value. Right. When when money is cheap, either because you can get it at zero rate or from VCs at higher valuations, the emphasis on value creation versus growth at all costs just isn't there. And I think that's that is an important trend that we're seeing come back now is about value creation. Well, I really believe the companies that will ride out um, this economic, uh, you know, the set of economic headwinds, you know, in in the fintech world or any place in the startup world are going to be those that are creating real value. You know, those that have that have identified a real market problem that matters and who are solving it in a way that's remarkable so that people want to do business with them. And if you're just chasing, you know, windmills, or trying to ride some temporary economic waves, um, you're going to be out of here. And I think that is a great place to end around uh, value creation. That and I accidentally touched my eyes with the hand that had been holding the blazing hot wings. And I now understand why they have milkshakes on the YouTube channel, why they're doing this. So thanks for spicing it up with me, Amy. It's always great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right, Alex, the inaugural hot wings and hot takes. What kind of wings do you got for me today? Uh, I have a Nashville hot chicken set of wings. So uh, that's what we're that's what we're rocking today. I expect to be crying by the end of this. Coincidentally, I went Nashville hot mixed with the mango habanero. Uh And as I was getting them, the woman looked at me and she's like, do you have a death wish? (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, well, not exactly, but I'm yeah, she was not interested in the podcast. So let's talk about something even about spicier than our wings. And we'll get this thing going. I'm gonna take awesome. a bite. So much going on in fintech right now. I don't even know where to start other than than a hot wing. Give me your spiciest tidbit. Where do you want to where do you want to kick off uh the hot wings? Well, I was wondering, should we do um should we do buy now pay later? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Holy smokes! I am going to pay later with this. Yep. Wow. Wow. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. So, buy now, pay later. I mean, that could be an entire show too. Everyone's getting into it, except some of the traditional banks. Yep. But with PayPal now saying, "Hey, we're getting into buy now, pay later," right? So I think it's only a matter of time until traditional banks get into it. But isn't it just another loan? Like it's a rebranded loan, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, I think it's it's absolutely just another type of lending. And it's not in a lot of ways that different from what we've been doing for a while. The the one that crystallized this for me was um, Apple announcing that they're getting into mm-hmm. it, right? Because that's like a big new sort of player from a distribution standpoint. But the thing that sort of was driven home to me when I was thinking about Apple's entry into buy now, pay later was there's the loan itself, 
which is fairly simple. It's, you know, um, four payments split out over six weeks. You pay the first one up front. It has certain sort of general transaction sizes. Like it's, it's short-term small dollar lending. It's not a big deal. But the question is, where are you presenting that loan and where is it being distributed within the sort of ecosystem where consumers are interacting? And to me, that's where banks are very different than Apple and Apple is very different than like Klarna, right? And so yep. the, the spectrum of differences exists almost entirely on the distribution side. The product side, it's just a short-term loan. Well, it, and this is one of the, the concerns, right? Is distribution is becoming more pervasive and more ways you can pay with this. It's supposed to, and you know, you know, from my Berkshire days, we were founded on this belief that credit cards for most consumers are a dangerous weapon. There's a whole bunch yep. of behavioral economics yep. that you know suggest. In fact, the Fed itself, the Atlanta Fed did a study that said if you make less than $120,000 a year, you should not have a rewards credit card that has any kind of annual fee because you won't get enough out of it. Right. And you overspend, right? And one of the reasons you overspend is it turns out that making a bundled payment, yep. right, diminishes the pain, like the pain I'm feeling in my mouth sure. right now, yeah. versus <laughs> you spend on debit, right, you feel all of that pain. Yep. And like, I just think of buy now, pay later takes that on steroids because you're not even doing your BNPL all in the same place that you could look at it and have, you know, the freak out moment of seeing your credit card bill and going, you know, Homer Simpson sound, ah, not going right. to spend that much next month until right. next month. Right. 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 I'm curious, where do you think who's going to end up holding the bag for BNPL? Well, I mean, I think that the, the challenge with buy now pay later, and this again gets to the difference between like banks participating in it versus uh, you know, the sort of buy now pay later platforms like Klarna is one of them is subsidized by merchants and one of them isn't, right? And yep. so the to your point about like the consumer pain, you know, the the consumer is in pain with buy now pay later because most buy now pay later activity today is underwritten by merchants who want to sell stuff, right? And yep. so there's just even wrong incentive credit cards. Yeah, there's just no incentive to stop people from signing up for buy now pay later because it's all helping merchants top up their cart values and their average order values. And I think that's the part that's going to start to shift as Apple gets into buy now pay later and banks dip their toes into it a bit more is that there will be different incentives and I think that in those cases they will care more about both the customer and how they're using the product. And again, banks aren't perfect, so they won't do that perfectly, but they'll have a different incentive. And I think that from a credit risk perspective, in terms of who gets uh, left holding the bag, because they're not making money from merchants every time they underwrite one of those transactions, they have to care about it more in terms of its own unit economics by itself, and they won't go quite so far in terms of pushing customers to uh, to use this when they shouldn't. So I, I feel like there's going to be a big difference between banks and the sort of ultimate outcome that comes out of buy now, pay later versus these platforms, because the incentives are totally different. Totally different. And that's one of the things that I thought was interesting when you see Apple and PayPal get into it, right? Where if you become that primary um, use case, you know, they do worry about, you know, am I going to be left holding the bag? But, you know, this is one of the other interesting aspects of it is unlike a credit card that reports and you can see what balance people are holding in various places. Yep. You don't know what someone's balance is across all of these platforms that have become so pervasive. 
No, you have no idea. And I mean, we used to worry about this in the online lending days, right? With the prospers and lending clubs of the world where you'd be stacking a lot of these loans on top of each other. And you just didn't have a clear understanding of like, how much debt do you actually owe? How much debt have you paid off? When do all of these due dates sort of overlap with each other? When do they overlap with the cash that's coming in from your paycheck? And like cash flow analysis became kind of a nightmare, right? Yep. Buy now, pay later is again that on steroids because you get 14 different buy now, pay later loans. And all of the terms of those loans are all based on whenever you happen to be shopping. And so they're spread out over the course of a month or longer than that. And you have no idea of when those are due relative to when your paychecks are coming in. And then on top of that, the other thing that's challenging is I think they try to make it easy for people to pay their bills by getting you to sign up for automatic payments, right? And just sign up for automatic bill pay and we'll collect that money. That makes sense, but it does put a really big onus on the customer to not sign up for automatic bill pays for all of these different due dates without necessarily missing their payments or not having. I mean, cash flow projection is going to become an even bigger nightmare. And I worry you begin to see this whiplash because I can't predict. Right. And I go negative. So what is like the knee jerk reaction is I go now do more buy now, pay later, especially for necessities. Right. That I have no choice, you know, necessities like Nashville hot wings. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, not as hot as the habanero. Just <laughs> well, the the Nashville is pretty hot too. The um the thing about the the cash flow analysis part that's also tricky is in addition to the buy now pay later companies not reporting to the bureaus, and supposedly that will be changing at some point. But in addition to that, they also don't really build uh, integrations with the open banking platforms, right? So if you're like wanting to build a budgeting app that helps people manage their buy now pay later loans and be able to see sort of a unified view of your cash flow, you can't because there are no scrapers that scrape Klarna and Afterpay and Affirm. And those companies haven't built integrations to Plaid and MX and Yodley and Finicity. And so there is no insight into that cash flow picture. Absolutely not. Right. Which brings us back to next topic. I'm going to change gears a little bit here because um, I think it was with Kia that we were having this conversation on Twitter in terms of, you know, I've never had a bank that cared about me. Mm-hmm. Um, Theo Lau also just wrote a great piece in terms of, you know, relationship with the financial institution. You know, this yep. takes us down a next level of a lot of the players that were rushing into this. Mm-hmm. I think we're also some of those players that are looking for how do I actually make money in this business, which mm-hmm. brings us to, Neobanks, right? Let's talk about what's going on because some interesting stuff. Chime just took a little bit of haircut, if you can call a haircut, you know, um, going down to $15 billion valuation. What do you think is happening in the Neobank world? Like, is this a return to earth? Is it an overreaction? Yeah. I mean, my belief on the Neobanking side is that we're going to get a lot of whiplash that comes from. VC investors largely turning the page really quick from here, take our huge check, spend it as quickly as you possibly can to grow as quickly as you possibly can. And we don't care if you care about fraud, you don't have to care about profitability, you don't have to care about unit economics, you just have to grow as quickly as you possibly can. We're going to funnel as much money into that growth machine as possible. 
And that's a very different, again, speaking of incentives, that's a very different incentive than the one that apparently now exists. And it just happened like almost overnight because of the changes in kind of the macro conditions. Now, suddenly investors are saying, we want profitability. We want strong unit economics. We want an extended uh, burn rate where we don't want to burn through all the cash that we're going to give you quickly. We want to see a sustainable business. And I feel like a lot of neobanks are caught up in that transition right now, where they were probably planning for a very different future six months ago or even a month ago than they are today. Two weeks ago? <laughs> yeah, two weeks ago. I mean, honestly, like there, there are these decisions that are being made where all of a sudden they're just out of certain businesses, right? I just saw yesterday that Brex decided to drop all of their small business customers. It literally like just happened and it seemed to come out of nowhere, but largely it was the manifestation of this slow shift that they've been making towards bigger enterprise customers and towards profitability. And now they're dropping all of their small business customers. So I think we're going to see some pretty stark business decisions that probably wouldn't ordinarily make sense, but they have to be made because of that change in sort of the funding environment and this focus on profitability. Well, in the profitability, and so I definitely missed out on some investment opportunities because in my post-Park Street world, like I my my religion is based around the ratio of lifetime value divided yep. by not just cost of acquisition, but cost to acquire an active account. Yep. Right. And right, so that's ratio one. Ask any of the neobanks and you know folks that I've counseled on the, that. And the other is the time to payback because time to yep. payback tells you how much money you need to go raise. That yep. playbook was thrown out the window when you saw these monster rounds, and totally. no one really focused, especially on the unit economics and the activation, right? Which hits ratio yep. one. And I I just wonder, and I'd love to hear you opine on this. Is there actually a viable business model in neo, in neobanking, which is so dependent on being an interchange-based business? Because you know, that dog don't hunt. Right, right. No, I think that's that's my big takeaway. And again, Brex is a good example of this because they were making money almost solely on interchange. Interchange-only businesses, whether it's B2B or B2C, I don't think they are sustainable, right? I think they probably were when we were in a low-rate environment and the cost to borrow funds was low, and there was a ton of obviously money being shoveled in from VCs. Mm. But in a higher rate environment, you know, you want to get to net interest margin. You want to be able to do lending. You want to be able to do all of these things that complement payments as a source of revenue that can get you to that payback quicker, right? And even if it's a segment of your customers, that segment can somewhat subsidize the other segment, right? Which is how a lot of banks work from a, a product line perspective. And neobanks are not in a good position to do that, right? I mean, th there's been a lot of interesting reporting about the challenges that neobanks have had getting or not getting bank charters. And sometimes it's actually not a good thing to get a bank charter before you're ready to get one. So that's mm -hmm. Uh, its own whole sort of ball of wax. And then on the lending front, you know, I think everyone just sort of assumes that, well, neobanks have built up a big base of deposit customers. They're gathered a lot of data, and then they're going to start underwriting loans to those customers. And that's where they really flip the switch for profitability. That's not going to happen, right? I mean, like, not here's my spicy take. That's not going to happen because lending is really, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. It's not something you just walk into. And all of the customers that neobanks have been scooping up over the last couple of years 
guess what? They skew lower income, they skew lower credit scores, they skew younger where you don't have a good understanding of what their repayment risk is going to be. Lending to that portfolio is going to be a nightmare. And I think there will be some that figure out a way to do that. But I think the vast majority who've been painting this picture of, hey, lending is where we save ourselves eventually, not going to happen. Now, in the same way that so many banks have always been like the, oh, we'll figure out how we make money on these customers later, right? right? Like we just need to acquire young customers, we'll monetize later. Yep. I don't think it works. And for in the same way that banks then are like, oh, FinTech, there's our silver bullet is FinTechs. Right. They, we see the same neobanks going, oh, we're going to figure out lending. It's like, but your whole value proposition was unbundling the bank. And now you're rebundling the bank because you say your value proposition doesn't work. Right. right. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, it worked for getting customers. It doesn't work for profitability, right? I mean, I think one of the things that people don't fully appreciate when they get into fintech and they start to take on banks is we have hundreds of years of history that show us which business models in financial services are stable and work across different macroeconomic environments and allow you to make money. And we have a lot of data about models that don't work or that work in one environment but don't work in another one. And I think that you know every generation of fintech founders sort of has to learn that lesson the hard way yeah. because you you have none of that history. You don't know any of that uh, sort of thing. You don't have that experience. And then you get into this environment, and that's why, from my perspective, you know some of the fintech companies that have been around for a while and are still sort of trying to grow, but are maybe have gone public or maybe have sort of slowed down a bit. Those are the ones I'm more bullish on because they cut their teeth learning those lessons and yeah. they're in a better position to capitalize on them than some of the newer ones that might've been growing a little faster. Yeah, I do feel like the hyper growth teaches the wrong lesson. Totally. Right? And I do blame a lot of the VCs on this where you know, the impetus was, you know, we need to put money to work. Therefore, you go build a, a bad business model based mm -hmm. on that approach. Um, which let's talk about other things that go up and then come down crypto. Yeah. Right? Interesting yep. things and interesting lessons. What's the hot take? Uh, hot take on crypto is that crypto, when it gets uh, turned into infrastructure, creates very, very bad banking products. So crypto as an investment you know, is fine. Um, I, I think anyone who's invested in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies for a while has seen the volatility. They accept the volatility. That's where the the rallying cry comes from. Like, like just hold on. Yeah. Wait out Total. this uh, this particular cycle. Like, you know, buy the dip. Like, there's a reason all of those things make sense and people understand them. And I'm okay with crypto as an investment, right? I think it's a it's a risky investment, but there's a reason for investing in it. There's a place for it in the mix of assets that are out there. My concern, and it's been manifested in the last couple of months in particular, is when the currency gets abstracted away from the experience that people have, and we build new on-ramps into crypto that don't look like an investment, but look like a savings account, or look like a deposit account, or look like a spending account that look like bank products and get compared to bank products, that's where people get hurt because the underlying volatility is still there. Yep. And none of the safeguards that we, again, have learned over hundreds of years are really important, like FDIC insurance. I was just none about to say FDIC there. insurance, right? Yeah, it's it's not there. And in fact, you know, six months ago, there were many, many companies in the crypto space 
sort of gleefully explaining on their websites and on their FAQ pages why FDIC insurance is stupid, why it's a scam, why it's unnecessary for the vast majority of consumers. But then you see stuff like uh, Terra and you see yep. stuff like um, you know Celsius and suddenly people can't get their money back out. There was a, a comment on a like a Reddit thread where people were talking about Celsius and these were all people who had invested their money with Celsius. And um, one of them asked kind of naively, I thought, you know, well, but isn't this insured? This money's still insured. We'll still get this money back out. And someone else who maybe was a little more aware of the risks they were taking was like, no, this isn't PNC. You're not getting your money back out, right? It's not PNC. It's not a bank. And I think that's a lesson that unfortunately, a lot of retail investors who were participating in these different protocols have learned over the last couple of months. Well, okay, so let's build on that for a second, because if you actually read the terms and conditions, yep. right, and get into that, not only does it say that uh, it's not FDIC insured, but yep. like, there's no guarantee you can get it out, including, right, you know, right. when you looked at the throttling that was going on. Yep. You know, I think, you know, one of the big concerns I have right now, as we look across, you know, first, what happened with Robinhood, now what's happened with, you know, Terra mm -hmm. and Celsius. And I'm going to extend this back to some of the neobanks. I'm really worried that as consumers, we've gotten lazy because we've been conditioned to understand FDIC insurance and we therefore don't go look for it anymore because right. there's just a base assumption it exists. Yep. But you know, I think that also in the last you know, cycle, we've had a relatively lax CFPB on pursuing some of this. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to name names. We happen to bank with them for provoke.fm. But I just noticed that, you know, when I was uh, reconnecting them to zero, they call themselves a bank and they are not a bank. Yep. And, you know, this has gone on. There's been a number of really big players doing things like calling bill pays checks. Yep. Right. That, you know, it makes me wonder now that we're seeing something less than this massive bull market in growth, growth, growth. Are we going to see people getting burned? Where do you think like some of this burn is going to come in now that we're not, everything always goes up and to the right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the biggest thing people are going to sort of find is that um, these product distinctions that we've drawn in the financial services industry for a long time, they exist for a reason, right? So like one of the things that happened over the last couple of years is fintech and crypto product developers came into the space and they're like, why should an investment account just be an investment account? It should also yeah. be a savings account and a spending account. Like we should combine all of these functions together into one thing. It's more convenient for customers. It's easier to use. It makes more sense. It's more intuitive. Like we don't need these old product design patterns that have existed in banking. We have the technology. We can just combine them together and build new things. And I think there is a value to doing that for customers. But the drawback for customers is to your point about kind of being conditioned we're conditioned to associate certain things with different words in financial services, right? A yep. deposit is something that you do to put your money in a safe place where the money you put in today is going to be there tomorrow. Investments are money you put in someplace to get a return that it might not be there tomorrow or the same amount might not be there tomorrow. Yep. Those two words matter, right? But when you're building new crypto or fintech products, and you use the language deposits, hey, we give you a better yield on your deposits, 
the word deposits conjures all kinds of important concepts for consumers that aren't necessarily there in that new infrastructure. So I think to your point about people calling themselves a bank when they're not, I'm hopeful that with maybe a little encouragement from regulators, we'll get some new guidance around encouragement. <laughs> yeah, seriously, maybe uh, some very, uh, very stark encouragement uh, in the case of some particular uh, players in the ecosystem. But like, I want the CFPB to jump into this because when we think about like, what is UDAP? What are UDAP violations? It all sort of fundamentally comes down to what words did you use? And mm-hmm. why did you use them? And what concepts did people associate with those words? And how did people get hurt because of that? I think we need to have a conversation about that. Well, a conversation about that. And I'm sure you've seen um, the survey. Finaster had actually fielded it. Around 85% of banks say they're getting into banking as a service over the next 18 months, right? So this becomes the gold rush between, oh, it turns out gathering deposits is about to get hard again. Yep. Right. And I still not seeing the relief that I'm looking for in my ability to you know, raise rates on my loans because there's more competition than ever, especially yep. from non-bank lenders and you know, startups that are you know playing in banking as a service on the lending side. Um, it makes me wonder which of the banks, right? Like it feels like there's going to be a giant finger pointing in the not too distant future of, you know, you know, he said, she said, you know, um, relative to the risk that was taken and who said what. Yeah. Well, I mean, the banking as a service one is hard, right? Because the 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 game with banking as a service is can you as a bank get comfortable with risks that other people are taking, not that you're taking yourself, right? And so it's like, hey, banking as a service is this huge growth market. There's all these opportunities, all these fintech companies that need bank partners. And that's true. But all of those fintech companies have risky new ideas for how they want to serve the market. A lot of them sort of tread into legally gray areas like cannabis or crypto or online gambling or whatever. A lot of them have different business models that might be a little bit concerning. A lot of them prioritize growth over things like KYC or fraud management. And so, yeah, there is a huge amount of opportunity with banking as a service. And I think banks have been late to that opportunity, generally speaking. But I now worry that we're in this gold rush and banks are going to be signing up to participate in banking as a service without understanding that at the end of the day, the regulator knocks on your door. They don't knock on the fintech door. They knock on your door and they want to know what's happening. And you have to be able to answer those questions. And in particular, I think, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, the part of that that makes me nervous is all of these banking as a service platforms that mm-hmm. sit in the middle of that interaction. Well, right? and that actually, right, there's a reason there's three Spider-Men in that meme pointing at each other, right? right. You're going to have the startup, you're going to have that intermediary, and you're going to have the yep. bank itself. And yep. I think one of the reasons the CFPB, you know, dusted off the, you know, now non-dormant yep. <laughs> rule is that's the shot across the bow, people, of, yeah, yes, the banks are going to be held to account, and I think in a very tough way. But I don't think it's going to stop with them. Right. Right. And, you know, I want to push back a little bit on what you said, maybe not push back, but extend for all of the extension of, you know, looking at these neobanks and these new version of lenders for as innovative as they claim they are. And Mm -hmm. Shamir Karkle and I 
had this conversation um, like over a year ago at Move. Like there mm-hmm. may have been, you know, not just wings, but alcohol involved. <laughs> that, you know, if you look back, you know, so Perk Street was 2008. They launched in 2010, right? Yep. So we've got a decade plus since then. Has the model really changed so much? And it's kind of like, no, right? So yeah. like we take more risks, but we're ta- not taking new risks in new ways. As much as I yeah. think about, you know, that a bunch of the lenders that I look at and say, you know, they think they're being more clever, but they're really just going deeper into the credit stack in a way that the banks have learned because they've been through different cycles, right? right? Or they, you know, you're a neobank, you're like, oh, I'm going to build a business based on interchange. Yep. Well, that only works when you're subsidizing it with venture capital. Do you think we even have enough innovation? Are people taking enough risk in new models to make these things work? Yeah, I I actually think they're not taking enough risk, but I think the risk I think the risk is a really interesting question because it's a question of what is the product you're offering and then how much risk do you want to take with the product? And I think mm-hmm. where fintech has sort of gotten stuck in the mud a bit since the Perk Street and Simple days is we've really sort of taken our foot off the gas on product innovation. Like let's imagine yep. new financial products that we can build that are substantially different or solve different jobs to be done for customers. And let's instead use the same basic products and same basic business models and just sort of subsidize our growth with VC dollars and taking more risks, right? And so yep. to me, the problem in fintech is, that the innovation has gotten more into, you know, how how much risk can we take and how sort of much money can we raise to extend these existing products and try to grow as much as we can instead of, and I get why this is a risk too, instead of starting from first principles and saying, what are things that banks should have been doing for decades that they just haven't done? What are some kind of white space areas where we can build new products and new experiences? And I think there are a ton of those, but I don't think they get nearly enough attention because, and this is what happens in any kind of competitive, highly uh, well-funded business. Once someone gets traction with a model, everyone piles in behind them, right? And you hear this all the time in the VC world, like, oh, we're investing in Brex for X, or we're investing in Plaid for Y, or we're investing in uh, Chime for Z. Everyone has these like archetypes in their head and instead of thinking through first principles and going, hey, there's a new problem over here that no one's really addressing, they funnel more money into patterns that they recognize. And I talked to plenty of fintech founders that have really novel insights, usually because they come from sort of a different, more diverse background, really novel insights about problems that still aren't being solved. But they kind of come to me with like a lot of frustration going, I've pitched this to 20 VCs and none of them care, right? Because- well, they, they can't point to, it's like, where's your Brex or your Divi or your Chime-like valuation associated with that? That's right. That's right. And they can't point to like a TAM that's easy to identify because mm-hmm. the problem hasn't been solved, right? I mean, even like corporate cards are relatively easy because you can point to American Express and say, well, we'll just take 70% of American Express's business. That's our TAM. That's not the same as we're going to invent a new thing that hasn't existed before, but the customers need to solve this core job to be done. It's hard to project a TAM onto that. It's hard to project a valuation onto that. Well, one of the things you said that was really insightful to me, and so I want to reiterate it, it kind of changed my mind. It isn't that these you know new players that are innovating, it's not that they're not taking risk. 
They're just not taking product risk. I like how you said that, right? Like they're taking growth risk. Can't, how fast can I grow with the money associated with that? Which goes back to it at first principles, also known as customer centricity. um, Mm -hmm. What problem do I solve? Why would they hire me to go do this job? Now, I do think, and I'm hopeful, would love your hot take on this, that we actually do need a market downturn and a tightening in the venture world in order to return to these kind of first principles, customer centric issues, as opposed to can I hop on the next hype? you know, you know, meme startup, if you will, um, you know, as it goes to the moon. No, I totally agree. There was a, there was a great tweet that someone shared. I apologize for not remembering the person who shared it, but it was um, in reference to web three, right. Which is going now into kind of winter. And a lot of the money is going to probably be coming back out of it to a certain degree, which I think is healthy. And the clip was of um, Jeff Bezos from like the late nineties explaining Amazon to someone. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And they said, and they counted the number of times in like a you know ninety second clip. He said the word customer. And it was like sixteen times, and they said very wisely, I think that in the Web three space, you would never imagine a Web three company saying customer that many times because the model up until now has been there's a ton of money, we can grow really fast. And so as long as we build up sort of hype in our brand and what we're doing, we can get a lot of that money and we can grow. And we don't need to worry about the customer. We don't need to worry about the use case. We can just say, oh, it's so early. We'll figure all of those things out. Now that I think things are going to slow down and investors are going to be a lot more disciplined about where they place their bets, you're going to have to return to customer, 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 customer. And people like to say that like great companies are built during recessions or during pullbacks or during bear markets. And I think that's true. But the common characteristic that all of them have is they're obsessed with the customer and they don't really care about growing fast. They care about growing based on the value exchange with the customer. And that's what Amazon did. That's what a lot of really successful companies have done regardless of the macro environment. Yeah. I'm so excited about, we haven't announced these two investment out of the LA Labs fund yet, but Mm -hmm. Both are solving problems that should have been solved long ago that are absolute unique takes. And unfortunately, like the greatest risk that I attribute to it is, can they actually go raise that next round, you know, when they go to raise the Series A because they don't fit into a standard hype model, you know, that you can look at, right? And so I've counseled both, you know, CEOs. It's like, you got to put up metrics like you got you have to count on. And this was you know, even before you know things tightened over the last couple of weeks is you better understand what numbers you need to be putting up and hit them before you go out for that next round. Because the ability to raise, you know, a 30, 40, 50 million dollar series A on, you know, vision ain't going to cut it anymore. No. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. But I, I do take heart from the fact that there are still those people who are becoming sort of weirdly obsessed with these little problems that haven't been solved that actually are really big problems. It's just, we Mm. haven't been paying attention to them. And it does give me a lot of comfort that like, when we say we're still so early, I think that's true. I just think that like money coming back out of the ecosystem and things slowing down a bit will give more breathing room to people who are serious about solving those problems. And at the same time, the people who are a little less serious, and I think we know a lot of those folks, we won't name any names, but the people who are less serious, they'll move on to something else because this is not a time for 
tourists in fintech. Nope, absolutely not. And I think that's a great place to wrap this. Alex, thanks for having some hot wings with me. My mouth's a little bit on fire. Time to go get a milkshake. Um, <laughs> but as always, pleasure. If you do not subscribe to Alex's newsletter, I guarantee it is the best thing that you should be reading on, well, now more than weekly, which is one of my favorite parts now that you're writing more. Beard is getting bigger now that you've you know, become the full-time writer and right. the, the analysis that now you've been writing. What pieces do you have coming out? Where can people find you other than following you on Twitter? Yep. Um, the the website is fintechtakes.com. So you can uh, subscribe and uh, get all the analysis on a weekly basis. And uh, yeah, lots of great stuff coming. I'm writing a lot about this current sort of venture environment and what the impact is going to be on fintech companies. Just wrote a big piece on the credit bureaus and did way too much in-depth analysis on what's going on with the bureaus and the- Not just the bureaus, the Golden Girls. Like, and like comparing them said, to- Golden here. Girls. Girls, yep. So uh, follow me for all of those uh, sort of pop culture takes that you didn't know you wanted as they relate to fintech. Didn't know you needed. Thanks, Alex. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.